Welcome, everybody, to the Tennis Worthy Podcast presented by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I'm Brett Haber, and we're back this week with new insight on just what unique qualities and attributes it takes to become a champion. Today's enlightening conversation features none other than the man who shares his name with a shoe. That, of course, is the legendary Stan Smith. I think you got to make the most of things you can control and um, not let things you can't control take over and, and uh, dissuade you from doing your best. One time we had Connors and McEnroe playing against Czechoslovakia, and uh, the only good thing about that was that the one guy that they disliked more than each other was Lendl. They're looking for an American and a top player, so I was, uh, we had an agreement to have my face in the shoe, and uh, as they say, the rest is history. About that time, around 17, form four goals. One was to become a member of the U.S. Davis Cup team, two was to become number one in the United States, three was to win Wimbledon, and four was to become the best player in the world. In today's chat, our host Chris Bowers dives into Stan's early years as an all-around athlete in Southern California. You'll hear why tennis, despite not being Stan's first love, was the sport that stuck and became the focus of his lofty goals. Stan also discusses how he reached the sport's heights while serving in the Army and how he balanced those two duties simultaneously. During a two-decade-long career, Stan became a seven-time major champion and helped capture seven Davis Cup titles for the U.S. The American tennis legend talks about his experiences representing the USA on court and the importance of character and confidence, and of course, how he became the driving force behind that iconic sneaker. I leave you now with Chris Bowers and Stan Smith. Chris, take it away. Stan Smith. Tell me how you got into tennis and through what sort of background? <laughs> well, my parents both were athletic. My father was a coach at Pasadena City College, and he actually got a, a master's degree in physical education. So he had that background. My mother loved sports, but I had two older brothers that were involved in different sports, of course, ahead of me, five years and seven years older. So my parents, you know, had me play a little bit of tennis, you know, early on, but it was really a group of parents in the area where, that I lived in Pasadena that formed the Pasadena Tennis Patrons. And they organized a clinic every Saturday morning at the Pasadena High School. And uh, there were kind of peach colored courts with hard wire nets. It was pretty public. And they hired Pancho Segura, who happened to be maybe the best coach that's ever coached. And every Saturday morning, we'd go there, we'd do calisthenics, we'd have to get jump ropes, and we would go through fitness exercises. Then each of the top players of that group got 20 minutes with Pancho Segura. So he went from like eight to 12 every Saturday, and that time he was probably 50 or so. And I got to learn from him. How old were you at that stage? And I was 15 at the time. And so I played some tournaments, a couple of local tournaments early on, but it wasn't until I was 15 that I won a sanctioned Southern California tournament. So I started later. I was playing football, basketball, track and field, uh, baseball, Little League baseball. So it, was, uh, it wasn't until I was 12 years old I got my first new racket. So when did you first pick up a racket? How old were you? 
I was probably 10 or so when I first, you know, hit a few balls. But like I said, I really didn't get too much into it because I was playing these other sports. Basketball was really my first love, but uh, I played Little League Baseball when I was 11 and 12, you know, for the summer and actually went to a music camp. Couldn't even finish the Little League Baseball season because I was at a music camp for about seven weeks in Colorado. And uh, it was that time when my parents picked me up from that camp I was 12 years old that I got my first new tennis racket. And what racket was it? It was a, a Jack Kramer Wilson autograph. So you would have grown up in a sporting environment. I take it it was a moderately affluent one in the sense that there was enough money there to, to fund the training and to for parents to take you to various events? Well, it was enough. Certainly it was an average sort of uh, area. Uh, I didn't have to pay too much for instruction. We paid a minimum amount for this passing the test. Tennis patrons, they really provided that Saturday morning. And I played a few tournaments along the way, but went with a group of people from the, our little clinic group. And so I really didn't have to spend too much at that time, really, to, to play. At what stage did you get the sense that you might be a little bit special? Well, it was early on that uh, I went with all my buddies that we played football with and basketball and baseball, and I hit a few less balls over the fence than they did, so I, I got a few more in the court. And uh, then this really took off when the Pasadena Tennis patrons got behind us because they really motivated us. They organized this clinic, and they gave us a chance to play against other kids in the area, and uh, I started, you know, progressing quite quickly at that point. Did you always believe you could be good, or was there a sense of you needing a couple of big results before you really got it? Well, I wasn't even thinking about being a good tennis player at that point in time. It wasn't until I was a senior in high school that I actually quit basketball midway through the season so I could concentrate on tennis. And so it wasn't even a, a thought of being a tennis player, you know, down the road. There was no professional game to speak of besides these uh, eight-man groups or head-to-head -head matches that Gonzalez and Labor played and Kramer and Gonzalez played. But at that time, there wasn't a professional game as it was. And so that wasn't really in my mind at all. I just wanted to, you know, get better, win a couple junior tournaments. And then the Southern California Tennis Association got behind me when I was 17 and they sent me back east to play in the national tournaments. And I got some experience on the national exposure there from playing in those, those national tournaments. But even at 17, we're talking about early 60s, open tennis was still a few years away and we didn't even know that at the time. To what extent did you have to think of a career and think of tennis just as a hobby? Well, fortunately, I got a scholarship to USC, in fact, I was waiting until May of my senior year in high school before the coach actually offered me the scholarship. And I almost went to UCLA because the USC coach had offered the scholarship to Ray Moore. I didn't know this until about 10 years later, but uh, Ray Moore turned pro and therefore didn't go to college. And, and the coach at that point gave me the scholarship. So I was trying to decide between USC and UCLA, and UCLA had offered me a scholarship, but the, the people in Pasadena were sort of USC, you know, protagonists, and so they thought that I should go to USC if I could, but <laughs> the coach didn't offer me a scholarship, so it was up in the air until my senior year, and 
And then I had great coaching from, in my opinion, the best tennis coach, college tennis coach, and his name was George Tolley. And he had worked with Dennis Ralston, Rafael Osuna, Alex Omedo, some players who had won you know, Grand Slam titles. But even at that time, when I was starting college, I wasn't thinking about professional tennis. You once tried to be a ball boy for the for a U.S. Davis Cup tie, but they rejected you. Why was that? That's a true story that Bud Collins has told many times on television. But it uh, it was when I was age 16, and there was a tie between U.S. and Mexico at the Los Angeles Tennis Club, where I practiced my senior year in high school, and. They said I might bother the players. I was too big and clumsy. So that was a motivation for me to get a little bit more, uh, you know, less clumsy, I guess. Were you very tall at 16? I wasn't super tall. I was six foot one, and I didn't get to six foot four until I was a senior in, uh, in high school, maybe a little bit afterwards. And so, you know, I was taller than the other kids in our little group that they were getting ball boys for. So uh, I guess that was the reason. And how was it to be told at 16, you're a bit clumsy? Was there any sense of, well, if they think I'm clumsy as a ball kid, I haven't got much chance of making it as a tennis player? <laughs> well, again, it, it, being a great tennis player wasn't in my mind at that point. Um, it was just a little bit after that that I really kind of, you know, when I got the scholarship to college and then saw some of these great players play, like Osuna, who won uh, the U.S. Open and, Dennis Ralston Osuna won the Wimbledon doubles when Dennis was like 17, and Alex Omedo had won Wimbledon the U.S. Open. And so I started to become a student of the game a little bit, and I did at about that time, around 17, form four goals. One was to become a member of the U.S. Davis Cup team. Two was to become number one in the United States. Three was to win Wimbledon, and four was to become the best player in the world. And you achieved all of those? Although they didn't have rankings at the time. Yeah, the well, they, they did, uh, yeah, the committee did appoint that. So for a couple of years, I was uh, number one in the world, once with John Newcomb kind of together and once on my own. So that was, uh, that was the start of my goals of then thinking about, you know, becoming a tennis player. But it really wasn't even kind of the professional level because it was still the amateur game at that point. So you have your eyes set on winning the U.S. Open and Wimbledon and playing Davis Cup. Where did the belief come from that you could do it? It wasn't until I was a senior in high school, senior in college, that I uh, I did get to play at Wimbledon for those years in the summertime uh, after my freshman year in college and then sophomore, junior, senior. But it wasn't until you know '68 or '9 that I beat a couple of good players that I thought maybe I could become a good player. But it really was 1971, I won the Masters, that uh, I really felt I belonged. And that the interesting thing that happened to me was I was playing at Wembley, and it was Wembley, then Stockholm, and then the Masters. And at Wembley, I had Pancho Gonzalez match point and lost. And uh, Jack Kramer came up to me and said, you know, kid, you're playing playing really well just keep at it you're going to win some matches like that and you know you're playing at a, at a really high level and so I won the doubles at Wembley and then won singles and doubles at Stockholm and then won the singles and doubles uh, you know at the end of the year so that comment that he made to me 
encouraged me at a time when I was a little bit upset and, and discouraged. And it led me to believe that I could beat the top guys. And the other th comment that really helped me was that I heard from Rosewall, an, uh, a quote from Rosewall at the Masters, that they asked him who, who were the favorites of the tournament. And he had mentioned me as, as one of the couple favorites in the tournament. And when I heard that from one of my peers, then I realized, well, maybe I am, you know, at the same level as these guys. And so I ended up playing him in the finals, actually, the, the last round of the round robin and and uh, won that match to win the, the Masters. Because there was no final in those days, was it? It was all round robin. It was round robin, yeah. Yeah. So did Kramer's comments and Rosewall's comments actually, were they almost part like a missing piece of the jigsaw in your own confidence? Yes. I mean, those two comments really helped me to realize that I was able to compete with the very top guys, and, and, and even they thought I was at that level. So that really enabled me to, to go out there playing with, a, with trying to win and not just trying to have a good score against uh, these good players. When tennis went open in the early part of 1968, did you turn professional straight away or did you wait your time? No, I was... Uh, I was guess I was an independent professional. You know, they had the contract professionals, independent professionals, and amateurs. And I was uh, in the process of being drafted, and so uh, I couldn't sign a contract. And and uh, I got a draft notice, and I actually played through 1970, just kind of postponing the draft because I was playing Davis Cup for the United States, and they allowed me to postpone it. But I got. To, <laughs> In Tokyo on December 14th in 70, it happened to be my birthday. I got my final draft notice saying I had to report on December 16th in L.A. No more cancellations or postponements. And uh, it was the day I beat Rosewall to clinch the Masters. And so uh, I beat Rosewall that day. The next day, I played Arthur in the final round of the, of the round robin and I didn't have to beat him because that match between Rosewell and I kind of decided it. That night, after that match, I got on the plane, flew to L.A., got to L.A. on December 15th. I left Tokyo on the 15th, got in L.A. on the 15th, and went home. And on the 16th, I went to the draft board and was inducted in the Army. So how long was your military service? Two years, almost two years. I got out a little bit early. So could you not play in those two? No, you did play in those two I years. I did play in those years. I was playing Davis Cup, representing the United States. And I did a lot of clinics and uh, some exhibitions for our troops in different places uh, during that time and was stationed in Washington, D.C. So if you did two years from December 1970, that means that the two Grand Slam titles you won were when you were in the Army. That's exactly right. I won the U.S. Open in 71, my first year in the Army, then I won the U.S. Uh, Wimbledon in 72. But how much did the Army stop you playing? Because if it was restrictive, surely that would have reduced your chances of winning the big tournaments. Yeah, so it wasn't so restrictive in the fact that they wanted me to play Davis Cup, and in order to play Davis Cup, you know, I needed to play in tournaments you know, prior to that. So that was the reasoning behind it. So when you got to Wimbledon in 71 you got to the final beat rosewall in the semis and then you lost a long one to john newcomb did that feel like you were almost there or was that a setback 
Well, I thought I was I was there. Just a matter of winning those points, and I uh, won the uh, won the U.S. Open, so I knew I could uh, I could do it. And I'd beaten him at the Queens Club two weeks before in the finals, and so I really I I really thought I was going to win that match. And when you look back on that Wimbledon final that got away, what were you thinking on that Saturday night? Well, I I lost I kind of lost some focus. I was up two sets to love. I won like almost ten games in a row, something like that, and I was playing unbelievable. And he fell and kind of didn't like he hurt his wrist, and you know, and I kind of played long and and lost some focus. And then he dug in a bit and and uh, kind of lost that momentum. Didn't really, you know, stay on top of it and finish the the, the deal. And so uh, I was disappointed that I didn't. You know that I was allowed myself to do that. I take it was a, a genuine injury. There wasn't. I mean, these days you'd you'd wonder whether there's some games. No, I, well, yeah, I think it was a little bit of that, but uh, uh, he wasn't hurt. And then a couple of months later, you won your first major at the U.S. Open. Did you feel you were riding the crest of the wave, having been runner-up at Wimbledon and a very close runner-up? Yes, I was playing well. I knew I was, I was playing well. I had a chance to win the tournament, and just had to really play. You know, at that level, and and uh, you never know. Everybody's playing. You know, the top players are playing, so you never know how the draw is going to go. You never know how you're going to play against certain players, and and they don't know about the doubles. We were playing singles and doubles as well, so sometimes you're playing a long doubles match can affect your singles results, and so there's a lot to it. In fact, the strangest thing about that was the semifinals were rained out on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. And, we played the semis on Tuesday and the finals on Wednesday, and then the doubles final after that. And how many people actually were there? Well, it wasn't full on the Wednesday, but it was pretty full. And, you know, it's getting to be pretty anticlimactic. You're going into the third week of a Grand Slam on a Wednesday of uh, a weekday. But it was a big day, you know, for us, the two players, that's for sure. So you're on the Grand Slam roll of honor, but on the third Wednesday... What was the feeling you had having finally won one of tennis's four majors? Well, I certainly I felt I was one of the top players at the time, if not the top player, you know, playing at a pretty high level and winning tournaments and and beating, you know, some of the top players that, you know, I beat Laver and Rosewell and Arthur and Newcomb and, and uh, Nastasi and Kodish and all those guys that were the top players at the time. So I was I was feeling good about my game. Did winning the U.S. Open release you? Did it sort of make you play more fluently, more relaxed? I don't know if it did or not. It, you know, it was certainly a uh, a turning point to win a Grand Slam event. Finally, you know, to win it and not come in second. And, but, you know, it gave you a level of confidence. So every time you walked on the court, you felt, you know, I'm the player to beat. They've got to play well to beat me. And uh, there's more pressure to a certain degree. But the goal of a tennis player, I think, is to get to the position where the other player would like to just have a good score against you, not necessarily think they can win. And if they lose 6-4, 6-4, I'm happy and they're happy that they got a good score and, and uh, everybody's happy. So that's the goal, is to be at, at such a level where the players are not really expecting to beat you. And were you aware that players were playing the reputation as well as the player? Certainly, yeah. Certainly players wanted to get a scalp on their belt. And that was, uh, there was definitely some more pressure.
And so to Wimbledon in 1972, you didn't have to face your nemesis from 71 because John Newcomb wasn't allowed to play as one of the contract professionals on one of the various bits of infighting, the WCT professional tour. Did that change your mindset going into it? No, you know, it's you go into the tournament uh, playing the players that are there, and um, uh, certainly there were a lot of good players in that tournament. So I did feel, though, I was I was seated one, and I felt I was the the best player that you know that year. So it's just a matter of you know playing as as well as I could. And yet, Nastasi was, I mean, almost a co-favorite with you in the final because he'd been playing really well up to the final. Yeah. And it went to five. No, he certainly was equal as far as, you know, go, when we got to the final by that, by that time. But, you know, going into the final, I thought that the experience of being in the final the year before and playing on the grass, and I felt that if, if I played my best, I would be the, the favorite. But when we get to the final, he's playing, he's playing great and, you know, had no visions of just, you know, being able to walk out on the court and win the match without any effort. It's hard to think of two more contrasting characters from that era in tennis, of you and Ily Nastasi. How did you get on with him? And did you find him as frustrating as some other players did? He was frustrating on the court because he was so talented, but then he would get involved in things either just because he'd lose it or else he'd consciously try to distract you. But, uh, you know, you'd hope that, you know, that he would get, uh, upset and then not play as well but and sometimes he would play you know better when he got you know he got kind of let loose a little bit but other times he'd play he'd play worse so my goal against him was really to stay focused and not the, the biggest problem was if he got involved in an argument you'd be delayed and you'd lose your rhythm and you lose your momentum and so you had to really stay focused and my goal against him really was to ignore him totally after a point you know, he might do something funny or he might go crazy. But uh, if I got involved with that whole th- scene, then I was losing my focus where it was sort of normal for him. So I had to really make it an effort to kind of ignore anything he might do. And some people thought, well, I wasn't having fun because he was having fun out there. But it wasn't something I, I, I didn't want to get involved in it because I didn't want to lose my focus. Tennis Worthy is not just a podcast. It's also a video series dedicated to the triumphs and challenges Hall of Famers and legends have overcome. From Arthur Ashe to Billie Jean King's resiliency and Martina Navratilova's sacrifice of defecting from her homeland for a better future, Tennis Worthy tells the best stories of the game from the best players in the game through the defining values of tennis. To watch, visit TennisFame.com slash TennisWorthy. When you shop at TennisFame.com, you're supporting the International Tennis Hall of Fame's mission to preserve tennis history, celebrate its greatest champions, and inspire tennis fans around the world. The shop is stocked with the best gifts for the tennis fan in your life, from performance fila apparel, hats, tees, and more. Shop now at ShopTennisFame.com. Let's send you back now to Chris Bowers for more of his conversation with Hall of Famer Stan Smith. We've talked about your two Grand Slam triumphs, U.S. Open and Wimbledon. What about Davis Cup? I and mean, that was a very big part of your life. It was one of your aims. What was the most satisfying moment for you? 
Well, the years that uh, were really special for me in Davis Cup were certainly the 68 year was our first year playing Davis Cup. Bob Lutz and I played doubles, and uh, Arthur Ashe played singles, and Clark Gravener and Charlie Passerell played some singles. And actually, I had hoped I might even play singles at that uh, that year, but I didn't. Uh, but that was a, f- a fun year because we traveled as a team. Donald Dell was our captain, and he was with us traveling most of the year. And so it was really a huge team effort to win. We had to win five matches to win the Davis Cup. And so it was, you know, we were playing tournaments, playing Davis Cup, playing tournaments, and playing Davis Cup. And so that was a fun year. And then the 72 was also another fun year because we had to play all the matches again. We had to play four matches all away, all on red clay. And the ultimate challenge uh, for our team to to get to the final and, and, of course, to win the final. And we were talked a few minutes ago about Ilya Nastasi. There was one infamous Davis Cup tie, USA against Romania, um, which threatened to get a little bit feisty. It was a really difficult year to play them behind the Iron Curtain, the first final. Uh, to play on red clay, it was raining most of the days, plus they watered the court. It was after the Munich Olympics in which the Israeli athletes had been killed. We had two Jewish members of our team. So we had unbelievable security during the time we were in Romania for about 10 days. We never stopped for a red light. Uh, We were sequestered into the 17th floor of the Intercontinental Hotel. We had translators who were with us, Bill and George, that uh, were with us the whole time. And so it was a tremendous amount of... uh, pressure on the team just to play and to kind of go through the daily activities and as it turned out the the most difficult person in that tie was Tyriak. Um I beat Nastasi pretty easily the first match and he had just won the US Open and uh, I think he felt the pressure and maybe hadn't prepared as well as he could have and so that really got us off to a great start. Then Tyriak played Gorman, and it was either be Gorman or Solomon, and Solomon had played in Spain the tie before but had gone back to school and so hadn't been playing as much. And Gorman had a pretty good record against Tyriak, and even though on clay it was not his best surface. And Gorman had a big lead, and then Tyriak started pulling his antics that were uh, unbelievable, and, and Gorman's back got stiff. They went to the later in the in the evening and and uh gorman ended up losing that match then we had to play the doubles and, and eric van dillen didn't want to play so they're cheating us so we can't really win and <laughs> so we had to calm him down and and he played the match of his life and we won that doubles and then i had to play tyriac in the fourth match and gorman had lost to nastasi like 12 times in a row so we didn't feel he was going to win that match and so that was a a big pressure cooker uh, to play that match against Tyriac. Did you get close to squaring up to Tyriac at one stage? Just about, yeah. He uh, he was pulling all sorts of things, and uh, and the neutral referee uh, actually said to me before the match, "You better win the match easily." I said, "I'm not going to change any calls." And I said, "Well, you know, if you're not going to change it, who is?" He said. Good luck, and so it was. Uh, he was intimidated by the situation, and and it was a, it was a the ultimate challenge to stay focused in that situation. But you did. I was able to win, but it wasn't easy. It was uh, six love in the fifth. 
And how did you feel at the end? Was it elated? Was it relief? Was it let's get well, out of here? Yeah, let's get out of here. Was the I, I didn't want to. I was trying to decide whether I wanted to shake hands or not. Um, what I might say to him and and uh, or do to him and that sort of thing. But uh, I was pretty hot at the end, and uh, uh, we were relieved to to uh, to get on that plane and go home. Have you spoken to Tyriac about it since? Yeah, we've we've spoken. He actually. Uh, we went back the thir- for the 30th anniversary of playing the match, and and he said, "I can't believe you're coming back." I said, "I can't either." But uh, he actually offered me his plane to to fly to uh, Athens, which is where I was going after that exhibition that we played. And so we, uh, yeah, we're friendly. So you took up his offer. I did. Yeah, it was very nice. That's very nice. In the early to mid-70s, you and your wife took in a black South African, Mark Matabane. Tell me the thinking behind that. Well, we met this young boy uh, when he was 17 years old. I was playing the tournament in Johannesburg, and he was watching Bob Lutz and I warm up before our match, and he started talking to Margie, my wife, and uh, by the fence. And uh, at the end of our warm-up, uh, Margie said, well, Mark, uh, you know, we'd like to hit. And so I hit a few balls with Mark, and then we went into the uh, restaurant and had a Coke and chatted a bit and uh, got to know him a little bit. And then he actually was hoping to get come to the United States and get a scholarship and to play in college. And so I said I'd try to do something. I wrote a letter to my coach at USC, and he wrote a letter to 10 other coaches at lower-level colleges, and one of them happened to be in South Carolina, responded and, and offered him a scholarship to come over. And he came over, and then we kind of, you know, helped him through his, his time in college. He went to four different colleges because he had some cultural shock in each of these different ones and trying to get his way and trying to figure it out. But he became a very talented writer and uh, wrote a, a bestseller, Kaffir Boy, Oprah Winfrey, had his family come over and interviewed them and he spent Christmas with us for about the first 10 years he was there and uh, it was one of those uh, experiences for us that you know we gave him some opportunities and he made the most of them and he's he's an outstanding young man he got married has three children you think of a guy from Alexandria having three kids going to Princeton it's one of the great stories and did you do it out of pure humanity, or was there an element of trying to counter the discrimination inherent in the apartheid system at the time? In well, South it was really out of humanity. I mean, we were willing to give him a chance, and uh, you know, I didn't necessarily think I was going to be as involved, but we kept getting more and more involved in in his life and his family, and you know, he was like our first son, really, uh, before we had any children. So it was. Uh, it was always enheartening to to see him progress so well with just a little bit of help. Without going too much back to Davis Cup, you had a, a sort of an extra title when you lifted the trophy in 1978 in Palm Springs when a young John McEnroe was making his debut and you and Bob Lutz played in the doubles. Yes, we played um, against David Lloyd and was it Mark Cox? It was. Yeah, and it was... Uh, it was the first time I'd seen McEnroe play a Davis Cup match uh, at a level which is unbelievable. He beat uh, 
both opponents pretty easily in the, in singles. And then we won the doubles to clinch the tie. And I don't know if that was the last year we won the I played Davis Cup or not, but it was uh, great to get uh, you know to get seven Davis Cup titles. You were at that stage an elder statesman of the American players. McEnroe was the brash youngster. To what extent did you find him a challenge, given his some of his antics? And to what extent did, were you impressed with his devotion to playing for his national team, which was always very strong? Yes, John McEnroe really felt loyalty to the U.S. and to the to the Davis Cup, and he played uh, one time. I think he played in Argentina. He was he was injured, but he he was loyal to it. He was whenever he was asked to play, he played. And of course, it wasn't uh, you know a totally different situation on the court. He would react as he did, and so it was difficult to be on the team. One time we had Connors and McEnroe playing against Czechoslovakia, and uh, the only good thing about that was that the one guy that they disliked more than each other was Lendl, and so it kind of brought them together for a few moments to try to do as well as they could together as a team to beat the Czechoslovakians and Lendl. But uh, that was difficult. Both of both of those players were, you know, were so competitive. And, you know, Arthur had a had some problems dealing with them as a captain. So it wasn't an easy situation. You were inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 1987. Tell me about the process. When did you first hear that you'd been nominated? Well, I'd, uh, yeah, I'd heard that I'd, I might be nominated because it's you have to be out for five years. You know, I'd had a good record, but it wasn't, uh, you know, automatic necessarily at the time. And so to be notified that, that I was uh, going to be inducted to the International Hall of Fame was a, a real highlight in, uh, in my life. And it became even more apparent when I got to to the International Tennis Hall of Fame induction ceremony and went to the museum and saw all the other players that had been inducted and I I realized at that time finally that uh, these were the premier players of all time the goats so to speak uh, that were all being honored in this particular hall and so and since then I became more Apparent, it's been more apparent to me that that uh, a lot of good players are not in the International Tennis Hall of Fame. That it's a very, very special fraternity of players. What do you remember about your enshrinement day? Well, I remember in Newport being a nice, toasty day, as it can be there, and being inducted actually with a pretty good class. It was Borg, Billie Jean King, Dennis Ralston, and Alex Olmedo, and. Um, Borg was not there. Billie Jean came in in a helicopter uh, just before the ceremony, and Alex Amato and Dennis Ralston. So the four of us were there, and we were able to speak and share a little bit about our our history. And uh, then the next year, I believe Borg came and was uh, came in person, was inducted that year. So it was uh, one of the better classes, I think, that were inducted. Five of us that one year. And was there anything that happened that weekend that kindled your long-term affinity with the International Tennis Hall of Fame that led you to being president for 10 years? I think the thing that impressed me the most was the 
the history of the game that I saw in the museum and realizing you know how great these players had been and the number of titles that they had won uh, and how these players had been the best of the best and so that was a that was really convinced me that this was a very very special place and at the age of 75 you got to stand alongside lots of ex wimbledon champions on the center court on the centenary of the center court how did you feel standing alongside some of the great survivors of recent history? Yes, you know, we've been on Wimbledon twice now uh, with a, a group of players, 77 and 2002. So I remember 77 very clearly because I have a photograph at home in my trophy cabinet. And 2002, I remember because Bunny Austin was there in a wheelchair and he had uh, gotten to know him so well and respect him so much, I uh, asked him to be the godfather to my second son. So we were very close, and it was fun to be out on the court with him there. And, of course, the photographs that were taken of uh, of all these greats. And it really is special when you think about those players who had won that. In that 77, there was Lacoste, Jack Kramer, Barotra, uh, Brunion, and Cochet were all there. So it was, uh, you know, the players from, from the past that were so great on the women's side. You had Alice Marble, some of the, you know, Billie Jean and Margaret Court, some of the great players of all time. So those are two special occasions. And this one was really special in that uh, uh, the three, three of the greatest players ever to play the game, certainly in Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer were there. And, and then the other two in my six were Borg, and labor and uh, the Sampras is my other sixth one that uh, in my top six that was not there unfortunately uh, as well as a few others that were not there and and unfortunately Martina uh, Navratilova had COVID so she had won it nine times and it was really a shame that she was not able to come out. To younger generations the name Stan Smith is well known but not as a tennis player but as a shoe. How did that story happen? Well, the shoe has uh, been a, an amazing part of my life in that um, back in the 70s, early 70s, Adidas had created this shoe. In fact, Horst Dossler, who was Adidas's son, and Robert Hayet created the first leather tennis shoe. Before that, we wore canvas. And so in 71, they were looking at expanding their presence in the United States, and they're looking for an American uh, and a top player. So I was... Uh, that America was number one in the world at the time. And so we had an agreement to have my face in the shoe and then have Robert Hayes' name on the side of the shoe. And then we had some different iterations for about four or five years. And finally they took his name off the shoe. And and uh, as they say, the rest is history. And until actually 2011, we had a meeting here at Wimbledon and Adidas said they wanted to take the shoe off the market for a couple of years. But they said they were going to relaunch it, and we came out of the meeting because we didn't have a real sense of confidence that they were going to do that. But sure enough, in 2014, they came out with a, a relaunch of the shoe, and it uh, it really took off around the world. And one of your books is called They Think I'm a Shoe. Was that just a good title, or have people just genuinely mistaken you for a shoe? I mean, in the well, sense of... Yeah. 
when we uh, talked about a title for the book, and I wanted to, uh, Adidas to get involved to, to really write about the history of the shoe and in the history of my career as well. So uh, when we talked about a title for the book, they had said, well, the man in the shoe or Stan the man, the man in the world or different titles. And I said, well, this, this title I've been thinking about for four or five years, some people think I'm a shoe, really came out and they kind of liked it and and the fact is that uh, most people in the world when they think of the name they do think of the shoe more than they think about me unless they're 50 or 60 years old and have followed tennis for a number of years. Looking back on your tennis career what is the most memorable the greatest moment for you? Well I think that uh, you know in 73 I played my best tennis and I won seven of 11 tournaments on the WCT tour. I was seated number one here at Wimbledon. I was really feeling good about my game, and uh, we boycotted the tournament. So 73 was maybe my best tennis, and then 74, I got to the semifinals here and lost to Rosewell in, in, after having match point in the semifinals. But I'd say the two biggest moments would be, you know, winning Wimbledon after losing the year before, and then also winning that Davis Cup in uh, in Bucharest because of the the difficulty of the mission <laughs> of us as a team really going there under very difficult conditions and, and being able to come out of there with a trophy. Was Bucharest your biggest obstacle that you had to overcome? I'd say so. You know, in, in overall, with everything involved, you know, being a team and trying to keep everybody positive and, and uh, fighting against the, the odds of of two players that were difficult at best in in, in easy conditions. And so uh, that was probably the truest test, I think, of character for not only myself, but our whole team. And what advice are you comfortable giving people today based on your seven decades of experience? In tennis players? Tennis, life, what, I mean, <laughs> what, 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 are you, what well, gems are you happy passing on? The, uh, the one thing that I would want to pass on is that everybody's pretty much the same. They have a lot of the same ideals. Uh, they have different personalities, uh, different dreams. And, um, but, you know, uh, a lot of extraordinary, thing, extraordinary things have been done by very ordinary people. And I think God's given each of us a certain amount of talent in, in different ways. And our only, in my opinion, our only obligation is to get the most out of that talent that you possibly can and uh, and not look back on your life with regrets of not giving it your best shot. So that would be my main bit of advice to any young person. And do you feel that you made the most of the talent that you were given? I've made a lot of the talent I've given. I don't know if I made the most, but uh, certainly uh, I've given it a pretty good shot. And, uh, you know, there's been some obstacles with injuries and things like that that have prevented me maybe from doing as well as I I might have been able to do. But uh, those are things you necessarily can't control. So uh, I think you've got to make the most of things you can control and um, not let things you can't control take over and, and uh, dissuade you from doing your best. Stan Smith, thank you very much for sharing your life's experiences with us. My pleasure. Thanks, Chris.
Thank you so much to Stan for joining us on the Tennis Worthy podcast. If you like what you heard, please share this show with somebody who's interested in Stan's story and in competing with character. Also, be sure to give a listen to all the other intriguing conversations the Tennis Worthy podcast has to offer with insights from the likes of Leighton Hewitt, Tracy Austin, Yvonne Lendl, and more. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us. The Tennis Worthy podcast was created by the International Tennis Hall of Fame in association with the Tennis Radio Network. I'm Brett Haber. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.